0: Hello everyone, welcome back to our 10th season of Sabbath School From Home. Uh, that uh, means we've now done, uh, what's 913s Ken? 117. 117, that's exactly it. Yeah, we've done 117 episodes. Wow. Uh, this our 118th. Uh, Luke's not here, Locke may join us soon, he's putting some kids to bed. Uh, but I'm very pleased to be joined by Ken. Hello, Ken.
1: Yeah, good day. Uh, nice to be here.
0: Now, the last couple of lessons, going through Deuteronomy and then uh, through Genesis, which seems to me now, in retrospect, to be the wrong order to do those books in, um, uh, have been very much uh, studying a particular book. Uh, the next quarter that the Seventh Day Adventist lesson study is on is much more thematic. Uh, looked at exploring different aspects of pain and suffering and trials of various sorts and what role they play in, in Christian experience uh, but it's entitled In the Crucible with Christ and looking through the titles of the lessons I was initially a little discouraged because they seemed quite opaque uh, but digging down a bit deeper uh, there seemed to be a bit more substance to them just before we, we start though I um, <coughs> Ken, when you hear the phrase, in the crucible with Christ, uh, what do you
1: think of? Uh, I think of something uh, where there's a lot of energy, pressure, um, heat. Um, uh, It sounds to me like a... Like a
0: church business meeting.
1: (laughs) It could be. A difficult time of some sort in any event.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ken, do you know that when I was in high school, I was literally in The Crucible. Uh, I was—I played Proctor in a production of the play The Crucible. Oh, okay. <laughs> you uh, were
1: then, you were.
0: <laughs> I was in The Crucible. And so the phrase The Crucible for me brings a strong association with that story. And it's, it's a really interesting... Um, perspective, which we might get to later, but this is possibly a diversion, but it's an interesting one. Um, The Crucible is a play uh, written in the 50s by, I think, Arthur Miller, um, set in early days, American history, and it's about the witch hunts of Salem. Yeah. And um, so, you know, a small remote community and... um, torn apart by these accusations of witchcraft, uh, people within the village using these accusations for their own uh, political and social hierarchy purposes, uh, story complicated by various current and former romances, and it ends with fairly much anyone who has any shred of, of regard left in terms of audience regard gets hung in the last act, including the character of Proctor. Right. Um and the person who represents the church finishes the play extremely um, demoralized at, at the way the witch hunt has unraveled. It certainly counts. I mean, it's called the crucible because it is it is the, a moment of great strife and uh, conflict in which the true characters of people are revealed but but what's what's interesting is the nature of the conflict is not like... Um, it's not some external thing. It's not like a government imposing a Sunday law. It's the religious institution of the village, or institutions within the village, tearing the village apart from within. Mm. You get the sense as you because these people are, are seeing a devil behind every bush, and and there's a scene in which the. Um, the person who, who's been brought in as an expert on devils, and he brings with him his textbook about incubi and succubi and all the different types of devils and the different uh, manifestations they take and, and how to spot them and how not to, and he holds the inquisitions and and some public hearings, and he's the one who eventually ends up demoralised. Um, uh, but he's brought in as, as an expert, and a, a devil is found behind every lurking bush, Um. And uh, by the end of the play, you begin to think that maybe the devil didn't actually need to do very much. I think the people in the village were doing pretty well on their own.
1: It's a very good point.
0: So it's interesting that we have then a whole lesson talking about being in the crucible with Christ. Christ, of course, himself was a victim not of great external forces outside the Jewish nation plotting to undermine him. You know, his ultimate, I was going to say undoing, that's not a good description of the event of the crucifixion because it was also his ultimate triumph. But his moments of greater greater suffering were precipitated not from um, trials in the world, but from trials in the church. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but perhaps we should wait till Luke are here with us to explore those things further. But I think... I think In that sense, the Christian story is one that demands a huge amount of humility from religious people.
1: It always astonishes me that we find it so difficult to see ourselves in those stories as the ones that Christ is criticising. It seems very clear that we must be because we are those people.
0: Um, Well, Ken, this is the exact problem when... When Christ confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the thing that winds them up is when he says, "Your ancestors stoned the prophets and killed them, and you're just like them." Yeah, that's the bit because that always associated them themselves with the goodies in the story, and it's the same with Stephen's speech in Acts. We commented on this at, at some previous episodes ago, but you know Stephen stands up and tells a history of the Jewish nation to Pharisees. Hmm. I mean, that's like, what's that like? That's like trying to teach an Eskimo about ice. <laughs>
2: um,
0: so he's, he, he sits there and tells this long history, the telling of which they can't possibly disagree at any point. And then at the end he says, and you're just like them. You're just like those people who ignored God's message in the desert. And then they picked up rocks and stoned him. So, so there seems to be a fairly strong precedent for um religious people reading stories about righteous people being persecuted and immediately associating with the righteous people. Mm. Mm. So I think I think one of the challenges we're going to have for the next 13 weeks is to say all right well in this story could we be could we be Nebuchadnezzar throwing people into the so preoccupied with our self-worth our own reputation um that we're willing to destroy God's messages just to preserve our own reputation. Um, you know, could we be like... Um, I don't know what other stories we're going to deal with, but, um, you know, could we be the baddie in the story?
1: Hmm. Well, I think it's worth thinking about. Um... I'm, just, I'm just looking
0: through the titles. I don't think there is a lesson on, um, on, on the crucible from the other side, from the person who's turning up the heat. Because, <laughs> uh, of course, the one stoking the fire, you know, because there have been times when the Christian church has definitely taken the role of the stoker.
1: Oh, quite so. Um,
0: perhaps I shouldn't say the Christian church. It's easy to point the finger like that. What I need to say, Ken, is perhaps there are times where I have been the stoker.
1: Mm. Uh, that's just a little bit too challenging for me at the moment, Cam. So. Uh... We'll just move on. All right, well, that's it. Well. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, let's move on. Though. Heaps easier. Um, I, I, look, see, uh, I, I, I don't want to think that, that's, that I'm that person. Um, uh, I need to recognise the reality that uh, inevitably I am, and I can think of occasions and people for whom I have been. Um, hmm. uh, that's not a particularly comfortable thought.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> There's uh, one other association I have with crucibles, Ken. Tell me. Uh, and that is that Oliver and I have recently done some experiments in casting aluminium.
1: He's been telling me about them, actually. Has he? Yes.
0: Yeah, we we, we uh, get aluminium cans, and um, although the last four uh, sauté we, 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 we did to find um, cans, we didn't find very many. The park was disgustingly clean. <laughs> um, so, but And then we melt them up, and we have been using, just as our crucible, just a half a baked beans tin. Yeah, so you've got so a steel tin it,
1: that you're using as a crucible for your aluminium cans.
0: Yeah, yeah. The steel tin lasts about four minutes. Right. Before it's rusted through, because at the temperatures that you melt aluminium, iron oxidises really quickly. Right. Um, and so we have a high uh, failure rate where the crucible bursts and the aluminium leaks into the bottom, and we have to let it cool down and fish through the ashes to <laughs> find the lump of aluminium. Uh, but it does give me a a, a, a a very small amount, at least a first-hand experience of of using a crucible to refine and melt and reshape a metal. Mm. So uh, uh, and it's very hot. In a crucible. I mean, I guess we're not even that hot because it's aluminium and they wouldn't have been melting aluminium. Yeah. What um, would they have been doing? Bronze. Bronze and iron, uh, which is much hotter temperatures. Oh, Locke, it's great that you can join us. Uh, I said at the start of this episode that you might and it's, it's good to see you here. Locke, we're just about to jump into the text for this uh, episode and the text is Psalm 23.
2: Fantastic. Would you like me to read it, please? Yes, please. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
1: There's a lifetime of Uh, contemplation in there still. Um, I I mean, let's go through it verse by verse, if if you don't mind. I mean, I start with that first one. The Lord is my shepherd, um, I shall not want. Um, Putting to one side the fact that these days, I think there's probably a lot of unfamiliarity with the role of a shepherd. Um, uh, there are sheep farmers of course um, but they may not be the same thing as shepherds but uh, this statement I shall not want um, what mm. am I to make of that um, uh, assume that the Lord is my shepherd means um, uh, somebody who you know cares for me um, uh, looks out for me um...
0: uh, Ken uh, uh, the Lord is my uh, superannuation manager
1: okay or oh, the yeah.
0: the Lord is my... I'm trying to think of an analogy. The Lord is my... Because uh, sheep were a livelihood. Yeah. Uh, and so they were protected as... as yeah, the Lord is
1: my investment advisor. Um, yeah. The Lord is my
0: investment advisor.
1: <laughs> well... Uh, but but I, I want to go to this, I shall not want. In what sense... What is that phrase conveying? Is it mm. stating a law of cause and effect... Uh, that when the Lord is my shepherd, I don't want anything. Um, that mm-hmm. is it saying that my desires are completely uh, removed, uh, and I'm you know in some sort of uh, desireless Buddhist, if you like, or Zen desireless state. Um, uh, does it mean um, uh, I don't want for anything because everything that I could ever have hoped and wanted is fulfilled? Um, uh, is it a statement of uh, fact about how my life is or will be when I am the sheep of that shepherd? Um, uh, is it a statement of how I should be um, but am not? Um, hmm. uh, what, what's it? Because the reality, the truth of the matter is, I do want, I do desire, um, hmm. I, I do, I, I, do have things that um, I seek, uh, and indeed the rest of Psalms recognises that Psalm twenty four, Psalm thirty seven four, talks about the Lord granting the desires of my heart. Um, hmm. So, what, what is, what is this? I shall not want.
0: Can remember we read through C.S. Lewis a uh, long time ago. Uh, C.S. Lewis Pilgrim's Regress Uh, one of the the Pilgrim's Regress being the opposite of Pilgrim's Progress so it begins with someone in the church who leaves it Um, and I won't give the end away anyone who wants to know how it ends should go and read the book but one of the things that the character in the book whose name is John finds incomprehensible and he can't he, he just cannot reconcile his daily experience of fierce and passionate desire he sees a vision of an island, and the vision consumes him. It's everything that's wonderful and beautiful. And and um, to not have the vision every moment, he's not having that vision of that island is like pain almost, um, but he wouldn't have n- never seen the vision for anything on earth. Mm. Um, so he wants the island, but he also wants the wanting of it. Mm. And then trying mm. to reconcile that with a list of rules enforced by this collared... Bland, hypocritical, you know, f- figure represents um, a very sort of formulaic religious attitude. And he, he just can't reconcile the two of these. And, well, I will give this away about the ending that the great turning point when he is when he discovers that these fierce desires, the wanting of things, um, is one of God's instruments for revealing himself hmm. to people. Um, and so. Uh, maybe maybe uh, the message says, God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. Ooh. So so the reference is that God is sufficient, which doesn't really relate to whether we continue to want things. I mean, to have something and to mm. still want them.
2: Yeah. I, I found actually that this sentence first felt like quite a non sequitur because I put the emphasis as follows. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How does the having of a shepherd mean that you know there could be a bad shepherd? The shepherd might not have at their at their availability all the resources that I need as a sheep. Mm. You know, just because I have a shepherd, it it felt really disjointed. But what if the emphasis is the other way around? The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. It's a statement about who God is, not a statement about what I should be.
1: There's the um, uh, there's this statement in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has planted eternity in our hearts. There's the statement of oh, which of the... Uh, so there, there is that eternity in our hearts. There's that wanting. But when the Lord is my shepherd, uh, then that desire uh, is fulfilled. Um, you know, mm. the, the the God-shaped hole in the in the human heart. Um, uh, so I like that. I like that look.
2: Um... The, the following in i mean verse two and three they seem to actually be expansions on this idea why why am I not in want of anything why why am I not in need of anything it's because the green pastures the still waters the restored soul um paths of righteousness so the, it it sort of seems to me in a way that it's expanding on that opening statement
1: that there's a sense in which too that this is the point that Jesus was making in the um in the Beatitudes, you know, who, who is the person who is blessed? Um, hmm. uh, the person who is blessed is the one who has God. And, and then, uh, and we come to this a little later in this psalm, uh, notwithstanding the circumstances of your life, um, if you have God, uh, then you are blessed. It seems to me that that's part of uh, the message of the Beatitudes hmm. and that's perhaps the message that we're getting here in Psalm 1. Psalm 23, 1.
0: The Beatitudes, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, but um, I, I'm very comfortable with a statement that says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be blessed. Or blessed are those who mourn because they... Will be comforted. Or, uh, people, who, people who mourn will be blessed when they're comforted. I'm happy with that statement. But what Christ says in, that, in the Beatitudes is that the people are Blessed. The mourners are blessed right now, and the people who hunger and thirst, well, maybe it's not right now. I don't know. I I find the Beatitudes... um,
1: They're they're sort of puzzling in a similar way to Psalm Um, (laughs) 23.1. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, We need to get to verse 4, because verse 4 is the only verse, I think, that qualifies this psalm for a lesson about being in the crucible. And I am perhaps a little uh, disappointed, given given the large number of discouraged, angry, furious, sulky, resentful Psalms that exist. Why this one should be picked yeah. <laughs> um, as as representing the crucible, I don't know. These are, remember in our first season where we were going through Psalms... Um, we thought we would try and be even-handed to try and find psalms of a varying amount of moods, and it's mm. much easier to find one that's negative than one that's positive.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> and it's interesting that, that that verse four comes after verses two and three, because verses two and three seem like an idyllic existence, um, mm. uh, and and then uh, and, and yet there's there's both. Um, uh,
0: well, let me read. We did this, and, and perhaps, like we should provide a link to uh, our discussion of Psalm 22 in the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me just read a few verses of the preceding psalm, um, and we'll see how the tone compares with Psalm 23. Um, "'I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads.'" Um, he trusts in the Lord let him deliver him let him rescue him for he delights in him they mock me Uh, uh, be not far from me my trouble is near many bulls encompass me strong bulls the bashing surround me they open their wide mouths at me I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint my heart is like wax it is melted within my breast my strength is dried up my tongue sticks to my jaws it goes on this sounds like
1: verse 4 of Psalm 23 more than verse two of psalm twenty three yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah one of the interesting things I, I think before we is, is there seems to me to be a bit of transition between verses two and four um, because in verse two you've got this idyllic existence, but in verse three and there are various tra- what did yours say for verse three Lachlan?
2: Uh, he restores my soul? Yes.
1: So he restores my soul is one of the, um, uh, is, is the traditional um, rendering mm. of that. Um, uh, the Hebrew Bible, alters translation of the Hebrew Bible has this, my life he brings back. Um, and uh-huh. he comments on that to say that uh, the word that's translated there as soul, uh, the Hebrew word actually means life breath. Um, mm. uh, so that he... He brings back my life breath. Um, and suggested... do, you know, do you know
0: what the message says, can well, the message says true to your true to your word, you let me catch my
1: breath. Oh, that's nice <laughs> too, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But but what is it about like like if if you are restoring somebody's life breath, uh, mm-hmm. then mm. that is a suggestion of uh, where their life's been in danger.
2: Um, yeah, you certainly don't need it to be restored if you've just been lying down in the green pastures yeah. and walking beside the still waters. Yeah.
1: And, and, and you've been walking beside the green pastures and by the, or you've been laying in the green pastures and walking by the still waters. And then you are led into paths of righteousness or the other um, English rendering of that word is, is justice. So mm. he leads me on the pathways of justice um, for his name's sake. Then we come to this bit about the veil of death's shadow.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and this is the challenging bit, I think. Uh, we all live in the shadow of death. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, we spend, uh, and there's a book by Ernest Becker, um, The Denial of Death, uh, in which he talks about uh, our much of our human existence being a denial of the inevitability. Uh, mm. Of our death. Um, so we, we're constantly walking in that shadow of death. Um, can we go back to verse 3? I said, He leads me on pathways of justice for His name's sake. Uh, it's not for your benefit. It's not for my benefit. It's for the benefit yeah, of His name. <clears throat> what, what do we make of mm, that?
0: But can, well, one of the things we make of it is that the culture of the people who wrote this psalm obviously placed more value on a name than. Australian general culture does mm.
2: yeah
0: um, yeah, so I mean there's something there's something it, it's definitely it could be framed as the way you said it like what God's helping me just for his reputation mm. um, that seems a bit but but the the tone of the psalm seems to suggest that the author regards God's name as being a worthy goal as a worthy end, end goal for these endeavours. So he, he mm. agrees with God as it were. He's he's on side, he's not at all resentful. He he seems to think that the um the, the more praise and glory to God's name is an end that justifies almost any means.
1: Mm. Or, or is he in fact saying that this is the very nature of God? Uh, that this uh, that doing these things um is simply the way that god operates um and when you name me when you name God up for who he truly is uh this is how it works hmm. um yeah. yeah um i I've, you wanted to get to verse four cam so I think we're just about there well verse
0: Verse 4 was the only verse I could see that had anything to do with the crucible in any metaphoric mm, sense. Mm,
2: mm. There's a Yeah, so there's the valley of the shadow of death. That sounds crucible-ish. There's the rod and your staff. And and I, wa- I actually wanted to jump on those because the rod, you know, spare the rod and ruin the child, a pretty famous attitude towards life. So that could be seen as a crucible, except that here they comfort me. And and I think you know I've certainly had had this pointed out to me before. A shepherd doesn't use their rod or their staff to to hit a sheep. It's to guide the sheep, to protect the sheep. Um, so I was struck by the the rod and your staff not really being crucible-like at all in this verse.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: No, nonetheless, um, there is uh, a way that. The rod and the staff, albeit perhaps not a strike in anger, um, is used with the application of force um, uh, to provide that guidance. And so, what it does do, it provides uh, the way you guide with it is to, you know, tap and move and push. Mm. And and so, there, there certainly is a, a a means in which that's used as a. As a, as a manner of encouragement to move in a particular direction. Otherwise, it's not providing any uh, guidance. Um, uh, and, and there's a way in which it's very true that those sorts of limitations uh, and guidance are a source of great comfort. And the absence of them uh, is a source of significant distress to the point even of paralysis And it's something Mm. that we experience in our society, I think, um, uh, because it is one of the things that we do with young people uh, is that we say to them, well, you should keep your options open. Um, Hmm. uh, And uh, uh, I'm not sure that's always really very good advice, Uh, just as it is not good advice uh, to a two-year-old to say to them, well, um, uh, why don't we... Work through each of the options, or you choose um, uh, as to whether or not you're going to put your hand into the um, into the power socket, or, um, or, <laughs> or, or or whether you're going to uh, uh, bang the saucepan um, uh, on the bench and crack it, um, or you know, I mean, there's a way in which having too much choice uh, is actually very destructive, um, and mm. and to And to know where the boundaries are is a source of great comfort.
2: Yeah.
0: There is the sense, isn't there, Ken, where today's young people suffer the enormous um, indignity. Is that a word? Um, Mm. The enormous um, misfortune to have nothing to rebel against.
1: Mm. Mm.
0: So, uh, you know, in previous... I'm thinking of people like... um, Famous musicians. I think Handel was told by his father that he didn't want him to be a musician and he used to sneak and play the cello in secret. <laughs> um, uh, it might be the musician, Melissa will tell me which musician it is, but there, there's a good number of musicians, it's a fairly common story. Um, and, you know, they had to practice their art in secret. Um, they lived in a highly constrictive society. And that it gave some sense that you just did the job that your parents did and what they did before you and what they did before you, and that was your life. And there is a lot of comfort in that, especially when seen against the sort of crippling anxiety that a lot of students I I teach have, especially when they're told that they have to go and live their best Mm,
1: life. mm. I think that's Um, such a dangerous message. Um, As if anything other than perfection in achieving your... Best life is somehow a failure. Uh, that something quite yeah. ordinary uh, and useful um, uh, cannot possibly be the source of fulfilment uh, unless it is has been maximised. Um,
0: yeah. So the the rod and the staff. I think are having a structure mm. um, in your life is is a really useful thing.
1: Indeed, it's true of it's true of so much human activity that structure. Um, uh, structure is actually a necessary precondition for creativity. Um, we think of creativity as being this, you know, sort of free-form uh, thing that that you bring into you, where you bring into existence something out of nothing. Um, that perhaps is creativity. Creativity for uh, an eternal, all-powerful being. Um, But it's not what we have been given. And some of the greatest creativity comes about uh, within very tight constraints. Um, Beethoven uh, composed his music uh, within the classical forms. Uh, And you can pick up the classical forms in all of his music. He knew when to break the rules just right while still... Operating within them, um, and and mm. there's a way in which and 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 mathematics is a uh, an, another area where Cam, I'm sure you could talk about the creativity within the structures. Um, mm. uh, so I, I think those boundaries, those structures, are part of human existence and a necessary part of our uh, of our creativity. So I guess do they
2: do they count as, cru- as, a, as a crucible? Um, I suppose in a sense, not. I think sometimes they can, in the moment, feel crucible-like, mm. and the, the recognition of the comfort or the support or the importance is, is sometimes something that comes upon reflection rather than being felt prominently in the moment. I, I can guarantee uh, by observation that for someone who's 10 or 11 years old, uh, sometimes helpful and positive rods and stars certainly <laughs> appear as a crucible.
0: Well, actually, I think this metaphor needs some more expansion on because a crucible is not an instrument for the destruction of things. Right. Mm. So it's not a shredding machine. Um, it's mm. it's not a, a grinder or a mortar and pestle. It's a it is has an object.
1: Indeed, it is uh, a container. An object. It is something that contains uh, the mm. and provides boundaries, uh, and 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 it doesn't work very well when it rusts away quickly. Cam,
0: no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like my crystals, um, it is it is all it is for purifying something. I mean, I don't, I still don't see a lot of that metaphor in this passage. In verse five, um, he acknowledges that he has enemies, mm. but. Um, But he's sitting down at a table being served while all his enemies are looking on.
1: Or is that the case? Is there another way of looking at it? Um, uh, He sets a table out before me uh, in the face of my enemies uh, in light of Jesus' um, uh, suggestion about loving your enemies. Is he actually, in fact, providing sufficient resources not only to feed yourself, um, uh, but to feed those who would take you down, uh, to minister to those mm. who would take you down. Um, this, this, mm. is, this is a table overflowing um, uh, to such an extent uh, that with his grace, uh, you are even able to supply the needs of your enemies. That's cool. I
0: mean, there's more useful things to say about the psalm, but we're going to divert away from the topic of crucibles. Uh you anoint my head with oil; my cup overflows. Uh, overflowing cup is perhaps something I could, um, I could <laughs> but the anointing my head with oil seems to me something that doesn't speak to me very strongly. Um, it perhaps would in a different cultural I mean, what context. Does, so, what does it? What does it mean, Ken? What does your translation say there with the anointing? It my simply head with oil? says, "You
1: moisten my head with oil, and my cup overflows." Uh, the
0: message says, the message says, you revive my drooping head.
1: Uh, huh.
0: uh, so, so, um, Peterson in the message has opted not to employ the anointing.
1: Uh, image. this is, this is really interesting because the, the, um, while it says that the commentary says this, the verb here, dishen, is not the one that is used for anointment and its associations are sensual rather than sacramental. Uh, etymologically, it means something like to make luxuriant. Um, this verse then lists all the physical elements of a happy life, a table laid out with good things to eat, a head of hair well rubbed with olive oil and an overflowing cup of wine. It, it then gives me a picture of, um, you, you know, you you give me a nice head massage um, if you like that. Um, if you don't like a massage, then perhaps this one's not for you. Um, but <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs>
2: It's, it's restru- I can't help but noticing a uh, feeling like this um, um, has a sort of mirrored structure. So after verse 4, we've now come back to, you know, the anointing my head with oil and my cup overflowing is sounding like it's quite a similar idea to the lying down in mm. green pastures and, and being led beside still mm. waters.
1: Mm. Let but goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life. And then many uh, translations will then go on and say, As I think the ones that we've read do, Um, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, Mm. It's interesting, uh, the Hebrew Bible again, uh, Alter says, um, he translates it, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. Um, Uh uh, And uh, he specifically says it doesn't mean forever. Uh, This is not an eschatological statement. Uh, and and I think this is an example of uh, a way that sometimes even the that, that we bring a, uh, a a religious or, or our concepts uh, and interpretations and spiritualizations of things to um, uh, to the scripture uh, and in a way that's not necessarily there in the original Hebrew. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, have I on this podcast um, had my little rant about sentences that begin with the word "surely"?
1: Uh, yes, you have. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I've. I've yeah. go you surely that. have. Cam. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or surely you have. Cool. Um. Yeah. <laughs> it's the preferred
0: way for my students to start a sentence, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially if, especially if they're asking me for things. Yeah. Um, But I approve of it in this instance
1: Um, (laughs) Yeah, okay, this is a matter of certainty Yeah Yeah. Mm. Live your life with confidence in God
0: So so here's the next question Did goodness and mercy follow David all the days of his life?
1: Uh, It depends on your metric
2: (laughs) It depends on whether all the bad things that happened to him happened at night (laughs) (laughs) uh, Uh, I don't think that's what the word days actually means here he must have hated the setting of the sun Uh, (laughs) now
1: Now the bad stuff's going to happen oh well at least I get another good day tomorrow (laughs) yeah
2: yeah, I mean he, he certainly knew about his enemies didn't he
0: Including his own kids. Mm. And and, I mean, one of the things that's because David's life just gets more complicated. Um, We've commented before about the Bathsheba story, how it seems a departure from a person who's more obviously seeking God's will for his life. And then with Bathsheba, things start to get messy. But, you know, things just get messier messier and messier and messier and messier. Um, towards the end of David's life. Um, And you would suspect that looking at, you know, as a young shepherd boy who's been made king, it would be easy to say, oh, God's leading my life. David, in his later years, looking at dysfunction within his own family, um, civil war, uh, you know, infighting between Mephibosheth and Zeba, who he's trying to be gracious to, Uh, you know, he must have looked at it and and pondered at times what God's leading looked like. Um, It is notable that David remains an agent of goodness and mercy. Mm. Uh, So when he is fleeing Jerusalem, there's that old guy who mocks him from the hill. And then on the way back when David is victorious, um, one of his soldiers says, hey, let's go and kill that guy. He was Mm. mocking you. And David stops him and says, "No, um, we're not. We're not going to kill him." So mm. uh, that's a paraphrase of a story that I've remembered. Uh, readers, please correct me if I've misremembered, but I think I think it's there. Second uh, Samuel, I think. Uh, so David remains an instrument of goodness and mercy.
2: Well, right that up that at is the end of his life. That's a great connection through to this theme of crucible, because crucible is not about destruction, like you were saying before. It Doesn't um, doesn't necessarily destroy something it, it's actually about trying to improve its goodness maybe not its mercy for a metal but um goodness a fitness for a purpose uh, you take take it shape it mold it maybe purify it um and refine it and you're you're commenting on on that process um or or perhaps the the some of those episodes which highlight the outcomes that the refining crucible is trying to make more frequent.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, I I like that. Locke, I think it's interesting, isn't it? What follows what in verse 6? Surely goodness and love will follow me. Now, the way we often read the previous parts of the psalm is that goodness will precede us in that God Mm. will guide us into this goodness. But here at the very end, uh, we see that, uh, you can think of it as the, um, uh, as the contrail, uh, of your life. Uh, as you forge through your life and through the valley of the shadow of death, um, uh, you leave not a trail of destruction, uh, but a trail Mm. of goodness and mercy. Uh, they, Mm. they are the things that follow you. That's what leaves you behind. Um, what gets caught up in your life is goodness and mercy. That's great. I like that. Is
2: that is that a thought we might want to finish on? I think so. Uh,
0: this uh, court is going to be an interesting one. I think uh, there's. It's been a while since we've had a, a, a thematic study, and I'm resonating a little more strongly with the with the concept of the crucible. I did think it was pushing things a little too far uh, to try and you know dwell for 13 weeks on the one metaphor uh, but perhaps not so uh, <clears throat> and if it is difficult perhaps it will be a crucible from which we emerge more pure
1: <laughs> and stronger uh,
0: <laughs> so we can win either i remain sceptical so, but
1: i'll look forward to being proved <laughs> wrong
0: <laughs> well i think i think like you say ken there's a lifetime of contemplation in psalm 23 yeah. Um, I would encourage our listeners to uh, go and read some of the other psalms that are properly depressing psalms. And in our first ever season, if you scroll back through um, the feed, wherever you find these podcasts, we did in our first episode, which was just at the start of lockdown, we did go Mm. and look at a whole bunch of psalms and we made an effort to try and find a a sort of representative sample, including some fairly miserable and some very, in some cases, vindictive sounding Mm. psalms. So um, uh, we'll see if perhaps we might be able to provide a link to some of those episodes in the show notes. Um, and uh, the, certainly the Psalms as a body have a good deal to say about the various trials and, and sufferings that, that, um, that are in this Psalm just referred to um, in passing, it seems. Uh, so uh, thank you for joining our discussion um, and feel free to check out some of those other episodes. And we're looking forward to next week's discussion and we hope that you'll join us. If you, if you feel so inclined, uh, please share this podcast with anyone who you feel
1: would benefit from it. Thank you so much for listening and join us again next week.